0: When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts.
1: Lots of news of all kinds going on right now.
0: And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.
2: Good evening, everybody. We begin the readout tonight with a renewed effort by the American right to make sure COVID is here to stay. First, they came for the schools. Now it's the businesses. An astonishing 180 for the party that once claimed that it stood for limited government, free enterprise and protecting corporate America from burdensome regulation. These days, the once grand old party stands for nothing Other than the quest for absolute power, which they intend to achieve by embracing a foaming at the mouth brand of conservatism that includes worshiping the disgraced former president, dismantling democracy and forcing businesses, forcing them to operate on their terms, which happened to include opening the doors to the pandemic, with the worst of them even associating the killer virus with freedom itself. They've also launched a new national pastime, empowering anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers to mob up and scream at, spit on and attack workers who have to mask up to work when they're not harassing teachers and healthcare professionals or moms walking their kids to school for masking up to prevent COVID. A life does need variation. And we now have abortion bounty hunt Governor Greg Abbott of Texas banning any entity in his state, including private businesses, from mandating COVID vaccinations for their workers or their customers. He's denouncing vaccine mandates as federal overreach. While his COVID-loving sidekick, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, is making good on his promise to punish local local governments for taking steps to protect workers because COVID must be let in. Otherwise, how would one market his top donor's remedy at fancy pop-up clinics? Florida's Leon County is now facing a $3.5 million fine for requiring proof of vaccination, as Baby Maga is also exploring options to legally block vaccine-related terminations in the private sector. If leadership could kill—oh, wait, it can. This comes as other Republicans and Maga minions double down on their anti-vax talking points. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan tweeting that we should ban vaccine mandates, period a move that would allow polio, measles and hepatitis to flourish in our schools. Because why not? Charlie Kirk of the right wing student group Turning Point USA got the covid party started tweeting reject tyranny. Catch the freedom flu, despite the fact that Kirk's colleague, the co-founder at Turning Point, died of covid last year. Conservatives are also turning NBA star Kyrie Kyrie Irving into an anti-vax martyr. The Brooklyn Nets guard is forbidden from playing or practicing with his teammates until he's fully eligible under New York's COVID-19 vaccination guidelines, prompting Donald Trump's number one fail son to once again tweet about actually talented people, this time pretending he cares about black people, saying Kyrie just sacrificed more than Kaepernick ever did. Narrator, he doesn't care about black people. Join me now. Tim Miller, writer at large at The Bulwark, and Don Calloway, Democratic strategist and founder of the National Voter Protection Action Fund. And Tim, I have been, you know, searching for the rationality in the idea of embracing COVID as a thing and saying COVID is king. Let it in. Let it in your business. Let it in your schools. Feed it to your kids with their breakfast cereal. COVID, COVID, COVID. Right. This love of COVID makes no sense to me, except They also want to market cures for COVID, right? They want you to go and buy you some hydroxychloroquine or go buy you some ivermectin. Maybe there's some financial incentive to it. So maybe that's it. Maybe they just want to have pop-up clinics with their favorite remedies. Okay, maybe that's it. But this thing about bossing businesses around, that seems to me even harder to explain with the Republican brand. Can you explain it?
3: Yeah, I want to give you a more simple answer than that, Joy. Uh, I think that the explanation is this is simple contrarianism, anti-elitism, um, and just you know just populism gone awry. It's as simple as that. Look, these guys think everything that Joy Reid is for, the Doctor Fauci is for, that the elites on the coasts are for, they have to be against. And if that means letting letting unnecessarily their own citizens die, they're going to let their own citizens die. Look at the state of Texas in the last two months. While we have a life-saving vaccine, 16,000 people have died in Texas of the novel coronavirus. Uh, uh, Greg Abbott, during that two months, uh, supported private businesses having the right to have a vaccine mandate. He looked at the 16,000 deaths, and rather than thinking the solution is, what can I do as somebody who has uh, you know, influence with, with many of these people who are not getting vaccinated? What can I do to help encourage them to get vaccinated? He's doing the opposite. He's saying anybody that tells you to get vaccinated, do not comply. Texas Representative Chip Roy tweeted this week. Do not comply, even though, you know, Chip is vaccinated. I I, I think that what these guys are doing is absolutely unconscionable. It's all about positioning. Uh, It's all about negative partisanship all the way down. It has nothing to do with uh, with leading their state, obviously, or caring about their citizens. All that stuff is way is way is has gone by the wayside, and I just I don't know that there are words to describe just how unconscionable hmm. the move that Greg Abbott has made in Texas is.
2: Right, I mean th- these are the same people who are screaming "Go back to work," but then also screaming. Catch the COVID flu or the freedom flu and don't go to work if you have to get vaccinated. That means you're not going to work, which is the thing you demanded that they not do. You said go to work now, but you're saying don't go to work. None of of it is coherent. Don, I mean, the other thing about it is. Right. Exactly. You know, Don, the other piece of it is the elitism, the the sort of fake anti-elitism. The people who are screaming this the loudest. Hello, Tucker Carlson, et cetera. These people are vaccinated or work at places that require vaccination. Fox News has these strictest requirements to be vaccinated and to report your vaccination status to them. It's the strictest in the media business. So these are vaccinated elite people. And then they're doing this thing where they're trying to, like, cosplay as if they're the black people during the civil rights movement right they're like no see if you look really look at history like the real victims and the people who were getting fire hoses on them well that would be us like elite rich white people like we're really the ones who were in those pictures we were really the one and to do that you need a couple of black people so that you can say see segregation look at that black guy and so now we enter Kyrie Irving another person elite because the nba has elite opportunity to get yourself the vaccine if you want it right they get tested they get everything He's refusing to do it. He's now got people who are trying to say, oh, no, no, no. He's upholding a huge principle. He's being principle. There's this, this sort of puff piece on the on the in the athletic Saying, like, no, 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 no. He thinks it's a principle that people shouldn't have to lose their jobs. And they're claiming that it's not about him being anti-vax. We have an expert, Ben Collins, who does this for a living and says that is exactly what anti-vaxers say. They say, oh, I'm not anti-science. I'm not anti-vax. I just believe in a principle. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts right. on all of that.
4: Well, I I just first, you know, the House Republican Party has staffers, many of whom are 25 to 35 years old. Those young staffers have become aware of the Twitter and other forms of the social media. And that's why you see people like Ted Cruz standing with the Kyrie Irvings. Six months ago, there's no way in the world you're standing with Kyrie Irving as he rocks Black Lives Matter and I am built by black history T-shirts on the court. Right. So there's this selective performative tropey thing of aligning yourselves with people of social media influence, otherwise known as clout chasing. I'm going to leave you with that one, Joy Reid. You can use it at your at your leisure. But the thing about so, so that's a performative thing that we're seeing emerge amongst the Republican caucus to get attention for themselves. But it's so fundamentally bereft of any type of intellectualism. When you talk about egalitarianism and the contrarianism that Tom talked about a moment ago, that leads us to one place and it's anti-intellectualism. One of the two major political parties in this country has so 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 aggressively adopted anti-intellectualism that they don't see it as inconsistent to say, uh, to pass a Texas abortion ban based in some specious theory of bodily autonomy and not have a problem with the inconsistency between that and raging against people not wanting to get vaccinated for some same theory of bodily autonomy. I know that was muddled. My point is they don't recognize that these things are inconsistent, and that is a problem. They don't recognize it because they broadly embrace the same anti-intellectualism, which is not only keeping them from getting vaccinated, but also keeping them from admitting that they're hurting us all by not being vaccinated.
2: Yeah, but the thing is, in the people doing it Tim. him, they went to Harvard. That's where I'm, I'm so has Harvard shame because that's where that's where he went to school. These people are Harvard, Yale, Princeton. These are these are Ivy League rich people who are being like, I stand with the common man. OK, Ted Cruz, if Ted Cruz saw Kyrie Irving in his neighborhood, he would call the police on him. <laughs> he would be like, you're in the wrong neighborhood. Nine one one. He would call the cops on him. That's the truth. OK, uh, but the other piece of this, too, is that on the business front, if they claim they care about business. To stay open, to be viable economically, these businesses have to do that. Look at all these businesses that are based in Texas, AT&T, Halliburton, Hewlett-Packard, ExxonMobil. But I'm really thinking about Southwest and American Airlines, the airlines. In order for them to thrive, they need these vaccine mandates so that people will feel safe getting in the plane. 7-Eleven, they need it. And so I wonder if at some point the business community pushes back and says, you can't do this to us.
3: Yeah, that classic woke liberal corporation Halliburton. Uh, they're stepping so on their joy. Uh, uh, look, I mean, look at this. Uh, I, I want to go even a step lower than that. Think about if you're a nursing home, right? And if you're a nursing home in Texas, and you have a lot of, uh, you know, obviously elderly people there who are maybe vaccinated, but they they have comorbidities, they have other reasons why they're uh, they uh, you know could have breakthrough cases. Uh, you i think everyone who has their mom or aunt or uncle or grandparent in a nursing home would want that place to have a vaccine mandate right like who wouldn't want who wouldn't want that in texas greg abbott is banning nursing homes from being able to have a vaccine mandate so, so you could have an unvaccinated nurse coming in and there's nothing that you could do about it legally in the state it's a, it's absolute madness obviously this is also the case for the 711s in the southwest of the world but i, I think that you know, if you think about these niche examples, they're extreme examples that just show how ridiculous and unsafe it is. I, I do want to have just one very small disagreement with Don on the Kyrie thing. Look, if Kyrie wants to be a voice, if all these guys that want to be a voice for the voiceless want to quit their job, all these millionaires, <laughs> I hope I hope the Ted Cruz's of the world stand with them. It would be great for Ted Cruz and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram to all do what Kyrie's doing. They should walk away as well. They're in vaccine mandated workplaces. I I think that if they want to be a voice for the voiceless with Kyrie, they all should stand shoulder to shoulder and do their civil rights cosplay together. I think that'd be great for the country.
2: But by the way, when he's not working anymore, you know how they're going to think about Kyrie, a a black man who quit his job and ain't working? Yeah, they're going to really stand with him. Don Jr. is going to be right there with him, fist in the air, like to like Hall, like Josh Hawley, right? No, he's not. going he gonna call the police on him. Don, uh, the other issue is, I think, for the Democrats, at some point, do you start to gather the vaccinated, the pro-science, the rational, and start to try to make them into a political force? Because it feels like the people who don't want their grandmothers to die in a nursing home in Texas might actually be a useful voting block.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And we hope that that is at least Uh, that that tactic is partially taken away from us as we move into the midterms next year. Because if Democrats can't can't run for office as being the House and the Senate of the vaccinated, of the sensible, then that means it's been taken away because COVID has gone away. So I would rather have COVID go away than to be able to use it as a, therefore to last long enough that that it could be organized into a politically organizing principle such that we would see the results pay off electorally. So we hope that COVID goes away before it can ever get to that. And so the other side is that, like you said at the beginning of this, I don't think that Republicans would have it go away because they have they are not above the moral shit show of then being able to use it as a political cudgel. I told myself I'd stop cussing this year. Sorry. Hey,
2: <laughs> you know, all, And here's the thing. I'm jealous. All the grandmamas, they don't go yell at you, die. They're going to yell at me. All the church this ladies is- with the church hat. Please at Don Calvin. What say your say your? How, how do we find you on Twitter? Are we gonna we gonna tweet you. <laughs> don't don't tweet at me. Don't at me. Don't at me. <laughs> you, you take this. <laughs> Rick Wilson thanks you for being not the guy who cursed today. Rick Wilson is like, ah, excellent. Thank you guys very much. Tim Miller, Don Callaway, you guys are great. Appreciate you. Up next on the readout, the big push for accountability. Members of the January 6th Select Committee say they may pursue criminal charges against anyone who ignores their subpoenas. Hopefully it's not just may, hopefully they mean will. Plus, the increasingly political Supreme Court. Conservative justices have their ideological checklist in hand, but they want you to believe that they are above politics. And tonight's absolute worst. The three things that could bring down American democracy. And it could all happen in a matter of months, not years, months. The readout continues after this.
5: Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future. That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future. The House
2: Select Committee on January 6th today issued a new subpoena for records and testimony from one of the most notorious figures in Trump's effort to steal the election and subvert our democracy. Late today, they subpoenaed Jeffrey Clark, a former Justice Department official and Trump loyalist who tried to nullify the election results in Georgia and other states, saying his efforts threatened to subvert the rule of law. Meanwhile, a moment of reckoning has come for several other targets of the committee's subpoenas. Tomorrow is the day that Trump ally Steve Bannon and former Defense Department aide Kash Patel are scheduled to be deposed, followed by Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino on Friday. If they defy their subpoenas and don't show up, criminal referrals could soon be in the works. It's a message that members of the of the committee have been reiterating all week.
6: The Committee is completely in solidarity.
5: Uh, every single person on the committee recognizes how important it is for us um, to make sure that we ensure we enforce our subpoenas.
4: We are of one mind. Uh, anyone who does not comply, um, we will refer for criminal prosecution. And. Uh, there needs to be accountability.
5: I would recommend the full extent of consequences, jail time, fines. We need to make sure that these people understand that this is not acceptable.
2: And at the top of the list for a possible criminal referral is Bannon, the accused build-the-wall scammer who made Breitbart the home of the white nationalist alt-right and rebranded Trump as a faux populist, and who's indicated that he will refuse to cooperate. The arrogance of the people who are facing these subpoenas may have something to do with the relative leniency that's been shown up to now for the accused shock troops of the insurrection. To date, there really haven't been serious consequences for any of the defendants from January 6th. You know, the people who sprayed bear spray in police officers' faces and beat them with their own shields. And many of these defendants have had the nerve to complain about even having to be in jail at all, moaning about the food or not having their spiritual requirements met or their ankle monitors causing blisters or beeping too loudly or needing time off to go to a wedding or on vacation. It just shows you the privilege of the January 6th defendants, when plenty of others, mainly people of color, have been languishing under similar or worse conditions across this country for a long, long time. The latest complaint comes from defendant Christopher Worrell, a member of the Proud Boys, who's accused of injuring police that day and who's now arguing that the D.C. jail cannot be trusted to oversee his cancer treatment because they've taken months to approve surgery on his broken hand. According to NBC's Scott McFarlane, one community activist commented, welcome to the club. And in an ironic twist, given that Warrell is a proud boy, it turns out that his cancer treatments are being provided by the medical center at Howard University. But in a very on-brand moment for a country desperately in need of lessons in critical race theory, his complaint was heeded by a federal judge who today held jail officials in contempt for violating Morel's civil rights, because of course they did. Joining me now is Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania. She was a Trump impeachment manager earlier this year. And Congresswoman, you've been on the show and in very emotional terms talked about what you went through that day, the fear that you faced, the, the, the fear your staff faced, these young staffers. When you hear these uh, jailed defendants who were beating police officers, who are responsible for multiple deaths that day, complaining that their jail conditions are too harsh or it's inconvenient to wear an ankle monitor, I am just uh, interested to hear what your response is and the fact that a judge siding, a judge is siding with them, basically.
1: I say, roll the tape, Joy. I'm pleased to be with you tonight, but we must never forget. The violent insurrection that descended on our capital, incited by a president and aided by others. Uh, and that's why uh, when people who are in jail uh, for their participation have these whining complaints, I have zero sympathy. And in fact, I want to make sure that more people are prosecuted and held to the highest extent of the law for their criminal insurrection behavior. We must not forget what this is about. This was not a break-in of some ordinary place uh, in our country. This was an insurrection, an attack on our democracy. Every single one of our lives was at risk as they came in saying, we will hang Mike Pence" and calling for Nancy. Uh, We know that had they gotten their hands on any one of us, uh, lives would have been lost. So again, roll the tape. There's no sympathy for anybody who's spending time in prison. And I hope they get the fullest sentences they can possibly
2: get. Yeah, they certainly didn't have empathy for, for you all um, at all, including the young staffers. Um, we know that at least some of these people are uh, some of the defendants on the other side, that the, the, the people who are accused of knowing a lot at the higher levels, some of them are complying. So Jeffrey Rosen, um, the former acting attorney general under Trump, um, he was scheduled to appear today before the committee. He apparently has now been interviewed in person today. Um, That sounds like progress. Uh, Do you expect that short of being rounded up by the U.S. marshals, most or all of these defendants will show up? And if they don't, what do you think should happen?
1: Well, and I I had the chance to speak just in the last couple of days to both Jamie Raskin and Pete Aguilar, who are serving on the select committee. Uh, They assure me uh, and your tape reveals that in a bipartisan way, the members of the committee will make sure people show up. Uh, that records will be secured, that we will get the facts and the truth. But I don't expect that every one of them will comply. But when you see Jeffrey Rosen and others, this is a different time. We were involved in impeachment one and impeachment two under the Trump administration, where he encouraged uh, others to not uh, obey lawful subpoenas of Congress. Uh, We don't have the same attorney general, thank God. We don't have the same administration who would use the Department of Justice for its own purposes. So I expect a very different set of circumstances with some bad actors trying to avoid uh, coming forward and uh, obeying a subpoena. Uh, But I also expect that Chairman Benny Thompson and this committee in a bipartisan, singular voice will say we will hold you in in criminal contempt if you fail to comply.
2: And just to show you the difference, um, the White House today issued a second letter today um, reiterating uh, that they are rejecting Donald Trump's claim of executive privilege. Um, And in this letter to the National Archives, the White House counsel writes, President Biden does not uphold the former president's assertion of privilege in light of the urgency of the select committee's need for information. The president further instructs you to provide those pages 30 days after your notification to the former president absent any intervening court order do you expect that that this will wind up going to court? Because I can foresee a Steve Bannon thinking, I'll go ahead and break this law. I'll risk arrest. I'll risk contempt of Congress charges in the hopes that they can reinstall Trump as president in 2024. And then in 2025, he can pardon them. Uh, Do you worry that some of these people who already have no respect for the law, no respect for the United States and its traditions will roll the dice?
1: Uh, I think some will, and they'll try to uh, run the clock out. But we have an administration and a Department of Justice, and I hope a judiciary, who will not allow them to do it. Somebody like Mr. Bannon reveals himself uh, and his stellar uh, legal defense by claiming executive privilege, which he's not entitled. Uh, and of course, we have an administration who said, we're not offering executive privilege to those who might be entitled to it. Uh, What I want to remind people of is the urgency of this. Sure, there are going to be bad actors dragging their feet, breaking the law. Uh, This is a committee that will work, uh, I think, really swiftly in the face of that. But what I want to remind people of is that this was a violent insurrection attempted. uh, And parts of it, the violence, uh, was uh, accomplished uh, on January the 6th. And it's not over. You see, my colleagues, Republican colleagues on the floor continuing the big lie. The threat is not ended, it is not over. Uh, we see that uh, the former president, whose name I'm not going to use, is continuing to uh, try to water those seeds of discontent and continue the big lie. So, for every American, know that we in Congress recognize the very democracy that we enjoy uh, and that we must practice and pr- uh, protect is at stake. And that's why the work of this committee and the work of this Congress is to hold people accountable so this never happens again.
2: Let me play for you, Stephanie Murphy, um, the Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of the Select Committee. And this is what she said uh, ought to happen to those who do not want to comply with these subpoenas. Here she is.
4: Are you going to use the Marshall Service to bring people like Mark
7: Meadows to Congress?
5: I know that we have engaged with a wide variety of law enforcement offices, including the U.S. Marshals, in order to issue the subpoenas. And we will use everything, as you said, with all due respect. We will use all of the agencies and all of the uh, tools at our disposal to issue the subpoenas and then enforce them.
2: Congresswoman Dean, do you expect to see U.S. Marshals out on the streets rounding up people who need to be before this committee?
1: Well, I know that the committee and the Congress has several options. I want to speak to, uh, exactly to Mark Meadows, for example. Uh, so, we can talk about legal wrangling and avoiding subpoenas, and will I get my lawyer to get in the way? And is there any way I can claim executive privilege in the face of an administration that won't let me? Mark Meadows is a public servant. He served in this Congress alongside Elijah Cummings, who was his friend. His calling is as an American first. He needs to come forward and say absolutely everything he knows about the insurrection? What happened before? Who helped plan it? What was the president doing all day long? Uh, Why was he avoiding uh, coming forward with the National Guard to protect his own vice president and Congress? Uh, Mark Meadows needs to step up as an American and speak up and say, I am here. I will go under oath. I will tell you everything I know.
2: We we shall see, one should hope. A congresswoman, Madeline Dean, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time, as always. Up next on the readout, a Supreme Court justice directly went after my next guest for being, quote, inflammatory, because he dared to point out that the conservative court is acting politically. Now I've looked and I've searched and I cannot detect the lie. So we'll discuss when we come back.
0: Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops On. Here is a line from a recent piece talking about our refusal to grant an injunction in the Texas abortion case. Quote, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court was so eager to nullify Roe v. Wade that it didn't even wait for oral argument, end quote. Now, put aside the false and inflammatory claim that we nullified Roe v. Wade we did no such thing.
2: Recent decisions by the Supreme Court and how they were made are putting the conservative majority on the defensive as the nation's highest court gets called out for playing politics. As you just saw, Justice Samuel Alito was in full dudgeon in a recent speech saying it's just wrong to depict the court as a dangerous cabal that is deciding important issues in a novel, secretive, improper way in the middle of the night, hidden from public view. Of course, their ruling to allow Texas to move ahead with the nation's most restrictive abortion law made in the middle of the night, literally, without hearing a single oral argument, doesn't really help their case. And the journalist that Alito was calling out in that soundbite that we just played for you, The Atlantic's Adam Serwer, writes that the fact that Alito is publicly speaking out only proves this point. Quote, Alito's speech perfectly encapsulated the new imperious attitude of the court's right-wing majority which wants to act politically without being seen as political and expects the public to silently acquiesce to its every directive without scrutiny, criticism or protest. And this all comes as President Biden's commission studying potential changes to the court is expected to release its preliminary report tomorrow. Joining me now is Adam Sir, staff writer for The Atlantic. Adam, it's always great to talk with you. Uh, you know, just looking at the way that these shadow docket cases have gone down, The Trump administration won 28 out of 41 cases. That's a 70 percent success rate. Um, Let's look at some of the things that they've been able to do. Just it's up there. Texas restrictive abortion law to go into effect. That's new. The pay to vote system, which is basically a poll tax in Florida. They upheld that. The Muslim travel ban, the transport uh, banning transgender troops. You can go on and on redirecting military funds to build the wall. Your argument, I thought, was brilliant, by the way, um, that essentially they're doing politics but they don't want to be seen as doing politics. Just please explain.
8: Uh, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, basically, what's going on right now is that the Supreme Court has a, a conservative supermajority and they don't want their decisions to be questioned. They don't want their de- decisions to be seen as political, even though that 6-3 majority is the result of decades of conservative advocacy. They want, to, uh, they want the public to see them as simply uh, apolitically interpreting the law. But now, obviously, that's not true. They, they didn't get these people didn't get put on the court to, to simply a politically interpret the law. They were put on the court to decide cases in, in a way that the conservative legal movement would prefer that they be decided. That doesn't mean they're always going to do that, but they're going to do it more often uh, in their favor than, you know, a, a, a court with a different composition would be. And to observe that is really just to state the obvious. Uh, but the justices on the court have very high opinions of themselves, and they don't like the suggestion that they are in any way politically influenced, even when they are acting in ways that are very obviously political. And that is you know, really what explains uh, all these public statements from the justices it, it, in contexts that are actually plainly political. I mean, the Notre Dame thing. Uh, was not as egregious as, you know, justices speaking at the Mitch McConnell Center in Kentucky uh, (laughs) talking about how they, uh, you know, they're they're not political hacks. Well, then, you know, don't act like one. Uh, Unfortunately, I mean, this is, you know, this is what the conservative legal movement has worked for. And if the left wants to change this set of circumstances, then they should uh, be as committed to shaping the courts the way they want them to be shaped as the conservative legal movement has for the past, you know, three, four, five decades.
2: You know, what's interesting, right, because you point out that, I mean, Alito was saying this in a in a, in a forum in which the press aren't allowed to be there. And, and there is a sort of imperious attitude. As you said, they, they want conservative right-wing legal outcomes. And so they stand aside and say, oh, we can't, sorry, we can't help you in Texas because, but we want that outcome. We're willing to let it sit there because it, it's a weird thing. Like, it reminds me of the overall right? They want these right-wing outcomes that the majority of the public doesn't want, but they, for some reason, they're bothered by the fact that the discontent, right? The discontent bothers them. They want the praise that, like, the Brown v. Board decision got. Like, they want to be praised for doing it, and they must know that they cannot.
8: Yeah, you know, I mean, I chose my words very carefully in that piece. I did not say that Roe v. Wade had been overturned. I said that it had been nullified. And you know what? Alito got very angry about that, but the truth is, uh, the women, the women of Texas do not need me, a, a columnist from The Atlantic, to tell them that they no longer have the right to end a pregnancy. They don't ha- need me to tell them that they no longer have full control over their own bodies, because that is what the legal situation is in Texas. I mean, if And if that bothers Alito so much, uh, then, you know, maybe he should have reconsidered the decision that he and the other court's conservatives made.
2: Do you think that part of the answer here is for Democrats to be as unembarrassed about moving the court back in the pro-Brown v. Board, Roe v. Wade direction as as conservatives are. You sort of alluded to that because you're right. They're acting very politically. They don't want to be criticized for it, but they know that they want these conservative outcomes. We all know that. They wouldn't have gotten the jobs. They very actively campaigned to be that person. You know, everyone knew what Kavanaugh and these guys were ideologically. That's how they got in. Should Democrats be as unembarrassed about trying to pull the courts back the other way? Is that the answer?
8: Well I don't think it's a question of shame. I think it's a question of the fact that the Republican Party is much less diverse ideologically than the Repo- than the Democratic Party. They are uh, a conservative party they are mostly they're mo- mostly made up of conservatives. The Democratic Party is made up of conservatives moderates, and liberals and so the same unity of action is not there uh, the, the courts have driven uh, votes for the Republican Party for generations and unfortunately, as far as the Democrats are concerned, uh, Democrats do not get as excised about. Uh, what the court does, as Republicans have in the past, and are not as committed to uh, shaping the courts in their image. Now, maybe that, that'll that change. I mean, I think a lot of people thought that the 2000 decision, uh, Bush v. Gore decision, would be that uh, flashpoint, especially since the court in that case literally said, you know, we're th- th- this, this decision only counts for the present circumstances, right. which was kind of an acknowledgment that they knew that they were behaving in a political way. Uh, but we have yet to see I don't think it's a question of unembarrassed. I think it's a question of we have yet to see uh, Democrats constituencies demanding uh, this kind of aggressive action um, as far as the courts are concerned that we have seen on the Republican side
2: that that might change because the, the, the courts are behaving in ways that even these politicians can't make happen. And then, then those decisions can really impact and harm so many people. I recommend everybody read this piece in The Atlantic. You should put the ether beat under it, though, if you read it out loud, because that's really the only way to read it properly. Adam Serwer, thank you very much. Really appreciate you thank being you, here. Adam. The brilliant Adam Serwer. Up next, the evil forces behind the unprecedented threats to our democracy. Our absolute worst is next. Supreme Court decisions have consequences that reverberate for decades, and we are still feeling the impact of when the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013. States no longer need to get federal approval for their election laws, including redistricting, which means that they have a lot more freedom to game the system so Republicans can keep far more power than they deserve. And that's exactly what happened in Texas in the middle of the late in the middle of the night last night, when the state house passed a proposed map that increases the number of districts that are majority white, while decreasing the Hispanic and Black majority districts. Despite the fact that people of color made up 95% of the population growth in Texas over the past decade. 95%. As Ari Berman points out, only 40% of Texans identify as white, but 59% of the districts gerrymandered by the legislature are majority white. And while 39% of the Texas population is Hispanic, they're only the majority in 20% of the districts. And 12% of Texans are black, but they're the majority in less than 5% of the new districts. Then there's Arkansas, whose governor just approved a map splitting the state's most populous and diverse county into three districts. He said today that he heard the complaints that the map would dilute the influence of minority voters, but signed the legislation anyway, noting that people had the option to challenge it in court. Cool. Very helpful. Now, gerrymandering is just one weapon Republicans have. They can and are directly also just directly suppressing votes. According to the Brennan Center, at least 19 states have enacted 33 laws that make it harder for Americans to vote. And guess which kinds of voters those target? Those target. And if that doesn't work, just convince voters that all elections are rigged anyway, after the fact. Yesterday, Trump supporters in Michigan held a conspiracy-filled rally endorsed by their favorite disgraced president to try to force the state to do, you guessed it, an audit of the 2020 election, with GOP congressional candidate John Rocha declaring, this is how a revolution starts. Not surprisingly, QAnon was present, with a state rep wearing a Q button. But not to worry, though, she says it was just a flag with a Q on it. And then clarify, the Q is the highest level of security in the federal government. Hashtag, that is what a QAnon believer would say. Orange Julius Caesar is now threatening to support primary opponents to Michigan Republicans if they don't audit the election. And the Detroit News reports that Michigan Republicans are replacing election officials with people who have questioned the validity of the election. So because the unprecedented threat to our democracy this country is facing because of that, Republicans who are doing everything they can to assure that they will win all future elections, including enabling the big lie. You are tonight's rather fascistic anti-democracy absolute worst. But it's not just Republican antics that we need to pay attention to. We also need to talk about whether Democrats are fully awake to it. More on that next. Benjamin Franklin was once asked what kind of government we have. And he said a republic, if you can keep it. Today, the system he helped devise, the one designed to keep the worst intentions of men and women at bay, is on the verge of collapse. The Republican Party has abandoned the once lofty principles their party was formed with at the very beginning and wholeheartedly embraced Donald Trump's authoritarian mantra. They're passing laws to ensure that they get to decide who wins and loses elections. They're passing laws to strip your right to vote. And they're approving maps that hand them control of state legislatures and the U.S. House of Representatives, no matter how the people vote. All of this is exhausting to think about. I get it. And sometimes you just want to curl up in the fetal position and just wait for it to pass. But here's the thing. It ain't going to pass. Trump and Trumpism is here to stay. In fact, he's getting stronger because GOP lemmings have completely embraced his brand of political poison. Take Virginia, for example. In three weeks, voters will choose between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin, who's been endorsed by Hugh Hewitt, Sebastian Gorka, and Donald Trump. Youngkin is rallying Republican supporters, vowing to repeal COVID mandates, promising to keep critical race theory out of schools and in schools and hinting at a desire to roll back reproductive rights. And polls show the race is close. Very, very close. Joining me now, Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones and New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg. Thank you both for being here. Ari, you put out those numbers on what they're doing in Texas. But what I thought is that. It's easy to sort of demonize the way they're doing things in Texas and Arkansas, but a state like Virginia is more subtle because Yunkin doesn't seem as extreme. But at the end of the day, the forces that are compelling Republican politicians all compel in one direction, demonize uh, women's right to choose, throw critical race theory, you know, red meat at the base. They're all going to do it. Do you have concerns that even people who try to fool themselves and fool you into thinking they're sort of moderate like Yunkin, all wind up playing the same game in 2024?
7: Well, Joe, I think it's become very clear in the last year that there are very few moderates left in the Republican Party and that attacking the democratic process is now the central organizing principle of the GOP. Remember, the Republican candidate for governor kicked off his campaign by lying about what happened in 2020 and made that his key platform. But I think what Republicans are doing in Texas is so revealing because it's really the prototype of their governing strategy which is to pass so many extreme and unpopular laws from basically banning abortion to allowing you to carry a gun without a permit to whitewashing how history is taught to extreme voter suppression laws. But they want to be able to do all of this extreme stuff without any account of any accountability. And that's why they're doing the gerrymandering and the voter suppression. So they can essentially override the will of the voters who want to hold them accountable.
2: You know, and Michelle, the, the thing is that they're they're not satisfied to just do this in places like Texas and Arkansas. They're coming for blue states. They made a run at the California governorship, trying to unseat that governor and replace them with a Trumper. This governor in Virginia, he's talking the same way that Trump is, just at a lower volume. And if he gets in, the challenge Democrats are going to have is that he, too, will be in position to mess with the vote in Virginia in 2024. And I feel like at this point, voters need to be single issue on that. I'm not sure that they are in a place like Virginia. What do you think?
6: Well, of course, in Virginia, a state like Virginia is obviously a much bigger prize for the Republican Party. I mean, as much as we all like to forecast the day that Texas will finally turn blue or at least purple, it's pretty likely that the Republican is going to win fair and square in Texas in 2024. It's a lot less likely are going to win a state like Virginia which is why a, a a party devoted to minority rule a party that believes that only they actually have a legitimate right to govern why they would why they would need to be in a position to mess with the process in Virginia and so i think that that's what you know they they sort of showed us even in their symbolic way how you can mess up an election how you can with the right plate with the right people in place you know send dual slates of electors to congress how you can get a republican house to perhaps um to, to, how you can get people to you know sort of mess up the counting of the vote and so they have the game plan this time they now they know how to enact it
2: And the thing is, Ari, they've got a both front-end and back-end strategy. On the front-end, they just make it hard to vote. And then they, you know, do things to mess with gerrymandering, to sort of ensure that these are as many Republican districts as possible, as red as possible, and to sort of drown out Democratic candidates by, like, putting two congressmen in the same district, making them run against each other like they're apparently doing in Texas. But on the back-end, then they say, oh, the election was invalid. We'll just recount and recount and recount until we win. It's like they've got both sides covered. And so, I mean, that is why I am concerned about a Virginia race, because if they get control of, of any part of that government, particularly the governorship, there's no way to stop them at that point.
7: That's right. I mean, the easiest way to steal an election is to rig it ahead of time, which is why they've been so so focused on voter suppression and now so focused on gerrymandering. If somehow that doesn't work, then they're going to try to steal the election after the fact. And I think that's What's so new and disturbing about their strategy is they've been doing the front of it for a long time, Joy, but the back end of it is what is newer about their strategy and what makes all the election subversion so dangerous. And we've learned over the last year that states are national battles that if you care about what's happening in Congress, if you care about the national landscape, you have to care about the states, not just because states copy each other and a lot of people obviously live in those places, but also the fact that states are the ones, the places where the voting happens, right? And where the election is certified before it even goes to Washington. And so I think we really have to pay very close attention to what's going on in places like Texas, what's happening in places like Virginia. And then the fact that Republicans are doing everything they can to make it harder to vote Democrats who have power in Washington need to do everything they can to make it easier to vote, to protect voting rights, that's the piece that's been missing here all along. Yeah.
2: And the urgency, Michelle, I think is missing. Right. I think that the, the, the urgency on having a national strategy, a national bill and getting that through, that's gone way back burner. Voter, ele- the electorate is getting exhausted watching them fail to do it. And meanwhile, you, know, you have Yunkin running with a, a, a running mate who's toting an AR-15. He's out there doing the critical race theory game. You know, he's saying a lot of the same things. And yet you look at the polling, McAuliffe is only up three points over him in, in, you know, in, in the latest um, YouGov poll. Um, you know, he's winning on COVID vaccines a little bit, but, you know, create more jobs, like sort of old fashioned, traditionally Republican issues, which I don't know why they be- people believe that he's winning. On that. It, it, it concerns, I think, a lot of folks who look at Virginia because it doesn't feel like that urgent message is getting through.
6: Well, I think I mean. Look, voters are demoralized. You know, they stayed on high alert for four years. They've um, contended with crisis after crisis, trauma after trauma. Part of the promise of a Biden presidency, or at least the hope of a Biden president, was that people didn't have to pay life or death minute by minute attention to the news. But in fact, Trumpism hasn't gone away. And so, you know, I would be worried about these polls, especially since we know that Republicans are just less likely to answer pollsters in the first place. At the same time, I do think we saw in California that if you light a fire under Democrats, if they understand the stakes and sort of understand what Republicans have in store for them, um, they will
2: ultimately turn out. Well, the fire would be, uh, Hari, do you want Virginia to be Texas in terms of COVID, in terms of vaccine mandates, in terms of silly fights over what's taught in schools? Do you want Virginia to be Texas? Isn't that probably the simplest way to put it?
7: Yeah, exactly. And Virginia 10 years ago was a lot more like Texas than Virginia is today. So states can move forward, but they can also move backwards. We've learned that throughout U.S. history, uh, and they've made a lot of progress there. And I don't think they want to lose those things they fought for over the last...
2: Absolutely. Ari Berman, uh, Michelle Goldberg, thank you guys both very much. That is tonight's readout. Tomorrow night, by the way, a readout exclusive. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, who's been at the forefront of the fight against the big lie, joins me in his first national interview since launching his campaign for governor. Thank you all for joining us tonight. That should be a hot one. Vote, vote, vote in Virginia. Vote in Virginia. Very important.